in the house today and welcome if you're watching online. Glad to have you with us today as well. Why don't you get your Bible out? It's what we do around here. Get your Bible out. Open up to John chapter 3 is where we're going to land today. John chapter 3. Well, I guess football is back, right? Any football lovers in here? Yeah, football is back, but it's kind of a little weird. It's a little little strange. Would you agree with that? It's a little weird. I mean, Tom Brady is in a different uniform. That's kind of weird. He turned 70 years old today. That's kind of weird. Uh, I mean, you've got uh, just just weird stuff going on. You've got uh, Las Vegas has a football team now. When did that happen? Anyway, and of course, the weirdest thing is the fans. The fans aren't, aren't there. They're just very small. Also, what's not there are the signs. You know what I'm talking about? The big signs that say John 3.16. Usually they're in the end zone and they're holding up so everybody can see John 3.16. You know, John 3.16 is probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible. I think probably it gained a lot of cultural following back in 2009 when Tim Tebow put John 3.16 under his eyes during the uh, uh, college national championship game. And from there, you know, it is regularly... But the number one search or one of the top five searched verses on Bible Gateway just about every single year. You also have found businesses that are really picking up on that and businesses like In-N-Out Burger and Forever 21 that will put John 3.16 on their packaging. In fact, I was going to the gas station just yesterday. I, I pull out the nozzle to fill up my tank with gas and this is what I see. And I promise I did not write that on there for this illustration. All right? It was just there, John 3.16, right there. I mean, you know, it's all over the place. And so when we think of John 3.16, we usually think as Christians, we usually think that's a verse that we need to get to the really, really lost person, right? Like the atheist next door to me that doesn't believe in God, they need John 3.16. Or the, you know, the guy that lives in some unreached tribe somewhere, they need John 3.16. But you may be surprised to know that when Jesus spoke the words in John 3.16, those were not spoken to an irreligious person, but a very religious person. Really, these words were for the religious, the people that go to church, the people that read their Bible, the people that that know about God. That's who John 3.16 was really originally spoken to. And so I want to show you the context of that verse. It's great to talk about John 3.16, but do you really know the whole story behind that verse? That's what we're talking about today. We're in our changed series, and we've been looking at how Jesus changes lives, right? And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus changed one man from spiritual blindness to sight. Last week, we looked at spiritual bondage to freedom. Today, we're talking about how he changed one man from being very religious to really having a relationship with God. Okay, so get your Bible, John 3.16. We're going to begin at verse 1, and uh, this is the word, word of God. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God For no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
I'll just stop right there for a minute. The man that Jesus spoke to was a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus uh, was a, a, we don't know a whole lot about him. He only appears in the Gospel of John. He doesn't appear in any other Gospels, only in the Gospel of John. But pretty much what we know about Nicodemus, we find out in this verse. That Nicodemus was two things. First off, he was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. Now, when you think of the word Pharisee, a lot of folks think that those are the bad guys in the Bible, right? Those are the ones that Jesus is always, you know, sparring with verbally. And it's true that Jesus had most of his harshest criticisms reserved for the Pharisees. But the Pharisees didn't start off bad. The Pharisees actually started off as good guys. During the intertestamental period, that is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 years, Israel began to slide further and further away from God, becoming more and more secular, more and more wayward. They didn't study the Torah. They didn't study the Word. They weren't worshiping like they, God had called them to. And so there were a group of men that stood up and said, hey, we need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to holiness. We need to get back to worship. And these men decided to separate themselves from this sliding, uh, pag- uh, uh, sliding toward paganism type of group and say, we need to get back to loving God. Those ones were called the separated ones or Pharisees. And, and they really had a heart for God's word. And so that was actually a good thing. But in order to not break certain laws, Pharisees said, tell you what, let's make laws so that they for sure won't break God's laws. Let's, let's what they call build a fence around the Torah. The Torah was the law of God. Let's add some other laws so that if you, if you don't break that one, then you surely won't break this one. And so they added more laws upon more laws and more rules upon more rules. They got to about 613 rules that everyone's supposed to keep. Can you imagine? And so it was like, uh, how far do I walk and what can I do on certain days? And it became so much about rules that it was the, their compassion for the people and their recognition of the Messiah was lost. Now, that's who this guy was. He was a Pharisee. He, was incre- he knew the Bible much more than you and I do. I mean, he, he spent his whole life studying the Bible. He was much more religious. I mean, he would never miss the prayers, never miss the time in the synagogue. He, he studied his whole life to know all the nuances of, of background and history and geography and theology. He studied all. He tithed not just his money, but he would tithe a tenth of the salt in the salt shaker or, or the parsley on the plant. I mean, he, he, he was over the top, so religious in every possible way. His righteousness would be way up here compared to ours down here. So he was this incredibly educated, knowledgeable, religious guy. He was a Pharisee. And not only on top of that, he was, look at what it says, he was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. That indicates that this guy actually sat on the Sanhedrin, the 71 men that ruled the nation. Out of all the nations, 71 men made up the Sanhedrin, and these were the powerful men. It would be like taking the U.S. Senate and the Supreme Court and wrapping it all together. They, They judged, they created and sustained laws. They were the most powerful court in the land. I mean, if your son became a Pharisee, you'd be super proud. If he made it to the Sanhedrin, it would just be like, you know, reaching the highest point. So respected, so powerful so influential. That's who this guy was. This man had really reached the top in every possible way, so religious, so moral, so good, so righteous, 
so powerful, such a spiritual leader, and yet there was something missing in him. There was this something missing. There was this ache. There was this longing. There was this vacuum in his heart. And he thought that maybe this rabbi from Nazareth, this Jesus, could help him. So he comes to him by night. Now, there are a lot of, a lot of theologians that have spin, spilt a lot of ink trying to figure out why he came by night. Some say that he came by night because he's just a super busy guy, right? He's got all this other stuff. He's only freed up at night. Uh, Others think that he was coming by night because he really doesn't want to be seen by other people because Jesus is... This is early in the ministry, but he's still already somewhat controversial, right? And so maybe he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus yet. That may be true. I think maybe he just couldn't sleep. That he's laying on his bed at night, and his mind is running, and something's not right in his heart, in his spirit. And he hears about Jesus, and he wants to go talk about it. And by the way, I think that's a good thing to do. When you can't sleep, when your mind is racing, when you have questions about the condition of your soul, go to Jesus. And that's what he does. He goes to Jesus by night, and look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform these signs you do unless God is with him. I mean, he addresses Jesus as rabbi, which means teacher. I mean, he's, I'm a teacher. I'm giving you respect. I mean, it's a very honoring thing. And you would think that Jesus would say, well, thank you very much, Nicodemus. It's great to have that endorsement from you, but he doesn't do any of that. I mean, Jesus just like cuts right to the point, And he says, I tell you, some versions say, verily, verily. Your version may say, truly, truly. What is that? That's just, Jesus is, it's an emphatic statement that I'm about to say something really true here, Nicodemus. He said, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, none of this matters that you have. This, this resume you've got going, that all the stuff you've got uh, put out there that makes you the greatest and the best, none of that matters, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Now, that phrase, born again, has kind of fallen on hard times of late. Uh, people don't understand it. Uh, people don't understand the term born again. Uh, some people think that born again is a voting block of conservatives, you know, that you got to woo to your side during an election. Some people think born again is like a movement back in the 60s that a lot of people talked about being born again. Uh, some people think born again is a, a type of Christian that's just like really into it, right? You know, you're one of those born again types. I get, I get it, you know, that kind of thing. But let me just make it really clear. To be a Christian is to be born again. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you are born again. That is, these are synonymous terms, and while it was very confusing to many people today, it was very confusing for Nicodemus. When he first heard this phrase, he'd be born again, I don't know that he, maybe he had in, in his scholarly uh, realm had kind of maybe talked about that. There was some Jewish thought that when a, a person converted to Judaism, it was like they were reborn. So maybe he's drawing from some of that Nicodemus may have heard of before, but, but now he, his mind is swimming. What does he mean? Look at what it says. Look at verse 7. He says, uh, or let's back up verse 4. How can uh, uh, anyone, Nicodemus says, uh, when he is, uh, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. You know, I'm really glad that Jesus uses the term born again because I think he uses it because it's a phrase that we can all relate to. Uh, I know I'm going to sound like Captain Obvious, but we've all been born, right? Amen? We've all been born. We understand physical birth. We understand the joy of physical birth. Man, when our daughters were born, man, we, we were so happy. We're telling everybody, everybody wants to join the celebration. Somebody's become a grandparent for the first time. I mean, they're almost obnoxious, right? Showing pictures of the birth and the video and all that kind of thing. We understand birth. And so what Jesus is saying is when you are right with God, when you really come into a relationship with God, it's like being born all over again. It's like being born from above. In fact, he contrasts physical birth and spiritual birth. He said, you know, if you got to be born of the water and the spirit. The water referring to physical birth. You know, when a woman is pregnant and she's about to give birth, it says her water broke, all right? That idea, you got to be born of the water physically and the spirit. You got to be born of the flesh and the spirit. See, he's contrasting these two. And he said, you've got to be born physically, but you also have to be born spiritually. Now, some of you, you know your physical birthday. You celebrate every year. But do you have a spiritual birthday? Do you know when you gave your life to Christ? Do you know when you were born again? So, a lot of people are confused about what does it mean to be born again, and I think Jesus unpacks it here very clearly for us. So, I, I want to give you three things that are necessary to be born again. And they're right out of this passage. And I'm telling you this because I want you to kind of self-assess a little bit. And I want you to think about, okay, has this been true in my life? Has I, have I experienced this? Have I been born again? Remember, this is to religious folks. These are the people that know and believe in God but have not truly been saved. So the first thing is this. Jot this down if you're taking notes. Being born again, number one, is a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit. Look at verse 7. He says, Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. When these hurricanes came blazing through the Gulf over these last couple weeks, I had a friend of mine that lives down there, kind of in the coastal area, gets flooded out a lot of times. And I called him up and said, are you guys okay? He said, yeah, we kind of had to relocate up, up a little bit. But he said, we really haven't had any flooding, but we've had a lot of wind damage. And, and I saw these pictures of like trees toppled over and mobile homes flipped over and all this kind of wind damage. The thing about wind is you don't see the wind, you just see the impact of the wind right? You don't see the wind, but you see the force of the wind. You hear the force of the wind. You feel the wind movement, but you don't see it with your eyes. And Jesus is saying the work of uh, being born again starts off with the work of the Spirit of God, and you don't see him, but you see what he does. You don't see him with your eyes, but you can tell, you can see the work that he is doing in a person's life. You say, okay, so how would I know if God's Spirit is working in my life? That's a great question. And I want you to jot in the margin of your Bible right there where you are in John 3. I want you to jot in the margin, John 16, 8. John 16, 8 is a very important verse. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8, and this is what he says. And when he comes... 
that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what the, one of the ways you can tell if the Spirit of God is at work is he convicts. What that means is that he, he all of a sudden brings a sense of remorse or guilt or brokenness over what? Over, number one, your sin. He convicts you of your sin. I mean, before you did that, and it didn't bother you at all. It was just, you just did it. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you're feeling bad about what you've done or bad about what you said or you're feeling guilty about your attitude that you had toward this person and the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you have sinned against God, that you've violated God's law, that you are a sinner condemned. All of a sudden, that becomes very real to you, very palpable to you. Not only are you convicted of your sin, but you're convicted of righteousness. That is that your best effort is not going to get you to heaven. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church. It doesn't matter if your daddy was a deacon. It doesn't matter uh, if your grandpa was a circuit rider. It doesn't matter if you were sprinkled as a kid. None of that matters that your religious efforts are insufficient for salvation. And he convicts you of that. And it's shocking. And not only that, he convicts you of judgment to come. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You begin to realize that you are going to stand before a holy God and you have nothing to show for yourself. John 14, 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, So that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you get that all? All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 9, 27 puts it very clearly. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so the Holy Spirit begins to grip your heart, and there's a sense of urgency and a sense of necessity that something change, right? Right? There's, there's something that grips your heart. Now listen, uh, this is why when I'm preaching a message like this, I can literally see the Holy Spirit at work. You say, well, how does that happen? It's not a preacher thing, all right? It's nothing weird. I can just notice because I'll be preaching about our sinfulness, our need for God, and there'll be somebody over here and they're going, man, how much longer do I have to endure this, right? I'm checking my ESPN app, you know, how's the game going, checking scores. I mean, they're, whoop, it's just, it's just, they're not even engaged. But then there may be somebody over here and tears are coming down their face. Same place, same words, same environment. How do you, why the difference? Because the Holy Spirit is working in one heart and he's not in another. You know, when, when Liz was pregnant with our daughters, uh, before each birth, there were the things called contractions. Ladies, you remember contractions? They're painful, right? And those contractions would come, your belly would tighten up, and, and your body's contracting, preparing, preparing, preparing for that birth that's about to come. Listen, when the Holy Spirit begins to work on you, it's like spiritual contractions. All of a sudden, he's working, and he's convicting, and there's a sense of urgency and necessity. And another thing that he does is he draws you to the Lord. I love this. Jesus said in, in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that happens through the Holy Spirit. So there's this sense of the Holy Spirit working on me, and I'm feeling 
guilty of my sin. I know I'm going to stand before God. I feel this longing to be right with God. If you feel any of that, that's only by the work of the Holy Spirit. In and of yourself, you wouldn't think a thing about him. But the Holy Spirit is drawing. The Holy Spirit is convicting. The Holy Spirit is working. And I can see that. And Jesus said, before someone is born again, there is this work of the Holy Spirit. You can't see with your eyes, but, but you can see his work, the impact. So that must happen. You can't be saved without conviction of sin. By the way, a little caveat, because you're in the second service, I can do my little caveats. Okay, hold on a second. If you're a parent, you're wanting to lead your child to Christ. That's a really good thing. But many parents skip right to, okay, well, they know Jesus. I mean, they believe in God. So they've said the prayer, but they haven't left room for the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. They, they need to experience conviction. And even a child can experience conviction of their sin when the Holy Spirit grabs their heart. So there's the convicting, the work of the Holy Spirit. Second thing that's necessary for there to be a conversion or to be born again is that there must be the witness of God's word. There must be the witness of God's word. Look at verse 11. This is so good. He said, truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now underline that verse 13. That is critical. That is vital. This verse 13 is what separates Christianity from every other religion. All right, get this. He's saying that uh, every other religion, this is, this is the basic common denominator for every religion. I don't care if it's Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, whatever it is, this is the baseline. That there is man and he tries to reach up to, to find God, to know God, and, and then try to do some kind of ritual or work to appease this God and finally to be saved. Right? It is always man reaching up and through their works and through their religious effort trying to attain acceptance before God. That is religion. Some people have said religion is spelled D-O. It's what you do. It's based on your effort, your work, your ritual, all these things you do to try to get to God. And this is the very difference of the Christian faith because the Christian faith is the exact opposite. The Christian faith says well, we cannot even know God. We can't even reach out to God. There's nothing in us that does that. And so in, 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 instead, God reaches down to us. He comes down to us in the person of Christ. He put on human flesh. He revealed himself to us. He went to a cross, and on the cross, he did the work of salvation on our behalf. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And so you are saved through what he has done. In fact, the Christian faith can be spelled D-O-N-E. It's all about what Christ has done. And that's what Jesus is saying. We've been telling you. We have this testimony. We have this message about the Son of Man coming to redeem. And you haven't accepted it. Now listen, how do we, where do we hear the message of what God has done? Where, where do we get that message? Where do we, what reveals to us what God has done, who he is and what he's done and how we can be saved? Uh, answer right here. All right. It's all right here. It's in, it's in the Bible. It's in God's word. It is the witness of God's word that points us to Jesus. And every promise in the word is fulfilled in Christ. And every precept in the word is in, in Christ. And every story points and reflects to Christ. 
That's why Christians all over the world are called people of the book. They're called people of the book because it's in the book, in God's word, that we understand who we are and who he is and what it means to be saved and how to walk with him. It's all in the witness of this book. And by the way, this is why every Sunday morning I get up and I say, get out your Bible. The Sundays I stop doing that, out. I got to go. Reload with somebody that will open up the sermon with, get out your Bible. Right? Because we are people of this book. It is through the Word of God that we understand who He is and what He's done. And it's through the preaching of the Word of God that we are saved. In fact, did you know that the only other place in the Bible where the phrase born again appears is talking about the Word of God? Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. This is what it says. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, that is, not of physical seed, Uh, a physical birth, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. All right? So really what has to happen for a person to be born again is there has to be two things coming together. Okay, just like in the physical world, you have to have a mom and a dad, and those come together to produce a conception. You have to have an egg and a sperm for them to come together. That's biology 101. And yes, your preacher just said sperm from the platform. Anyway, I just got you back. Hey, welcome back. Uh, Just like you have these two things that come together in spiritual life, you have to have the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And when these two things come together, there is life born. So have you felt the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you, have you heard the gospel in such a way that you understand our hope in Jesus? But there's one more thing that's needed. There's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's the witness of the Word of God. But there also is, for you to be born again, there must be a step of faith. There must be a step of faith. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now stop right there. He's talking to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is like knows all, all the Old Testament, right? He's an expert. And so he's referring back to an occasion in, in the book of Numbers chapter 21 where Moses is leading the Israelites and the Israelites are complaining. We don't like the wilderness. It's too hot. There's not enough water. We're so hungry. There's too much sand. I mean, they're just griping, complaining. They're like, we don't like you. Why did you bring us out here? Wish we were dead. I mean, all this kind of wonderful stuff. Complaining, complaining, complaining. And uh, finally, they're, they're, uh, God says, all right, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm bringing the hammer down. And he sends these poisonous snakes into the camp. I mean, can you imagine this? Like, I hate snakes, all right? This is like the scariest part of the Bible, man. It's like snakes on a plane times a thousand, right? I just hate that. And they're just crawling in the tents and they're biting people and they're, and they're, they're all of a sudden the poison is pulsating through their bodies and God gives Moses a directive to go fashion a snake of bronze, put it on a pole and hold it up. And if people look to it, they'll be saved, literally physically saved from the poison. Now listen, it doesn't really unpack it that much in the Bible. I don't think that Moses just kind of did a little thing, held up and said, okay, I'll look at the snake. They'll be saved. I don't think he does it. I think if Moses loves him at all, he's like running through the camp. Look at it. Look at the serpent. Listen, you look at this. You'll be saved. You don't have to die. Just look. Just look at it. I think he's running through the camp trying to get people. All they have to do is just look at it. They don't have to do anything. Just look in belief and faith and they'll be healed. 
And Jesus said, just like Moses did that, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And whoever believes in me will have eternal life. You see, there must be, yes, the work of the Holy Spirit convicting and drawing. Yes, there must be the, the declaration of the gospel. But there also must be saving faith to call on him, to look to him. And by the way, that is not a work that I do. It's just my response to look to him and say, Lord Jesus, you're my only hope. You're my only help. And this all leads up to John 3.16. All right, we start off with John 3.16. And so this is the context of John 3.16. So let's look at John 3.16 one more time. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Really, this verse, it's the gospel in a nutshell. It tells us everything we need to know about Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's a son of God that God loved and sent his son. Why did he come? So that he would suffer on the cross. He was given over to death on our behalf. The wrath of God fell on him so that we could be saved and forgiven. He was buried, he rose again. Why did he do this? Because God loves you. He really does. He loves you. And he wants to redeem you. And he wants you to be born again. And what is my response? To believe in him. Belief. Listen, to, to believe in him does not simply mean, yeah, okay, I believe there's God, I believe Jesus died, I, I, I believe the facts. It means to completely rely, put yourself in full reliance. I, I was in New York not too long ago, and I looked at the Washington Bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. It's a gorgeous bridge. I've been there a long time. And uh, you can look at it and say, man, that's a big bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. It's an ornate bridge. It's probably very strong. I see a lot of cars going over it every single day. It's probably a very strong bridge. But I don't really believe that until I stand on it. And it's the only thing holding me up. And listen, you don't really believe in saving faith until you rely only on Jesus. And he's your only hope. you got nothing else. And this is the gospel. This is the hope that we have. Jesus talked about this in John 1, verse 12. He said, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, there it is, he gave the right, right to become children of God. Children are not born in natural descent or human decision or husband will, not born physically. I'm not talking about physical birth, but born of God. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. That's what it means to be born again. Jesus told this religious man who had an incredible resume, who knew so much more, had done so much, was so respected. Everybody thought he's, he's, the, he's the measuring stick, right? He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I believe he said that because I think our churches, and I'm just being very honest with you now, I think in many cases, churches are filled with people who are religious and sincere but are lost 
because they'd never been born again. There's never been a, a, a moment where they were convicted of their sin and the gravity of it. They, they, they didn't see the gospel as their only hope and, and this reliance on Jesus. As simple as it is, they think they're okay because of what they know or what they've done. That's so sad and so deadly. This is written for the religious person. Nicodemus kind of disappears from the pages of Scripture. He doesn't reappear until John 19, after Jesus had died. And after the disciples had scattered, Nicodemus is there. He, along with a man named Joseph of Arimathea, took the body down of Jesus, and they prepared it for burial. And this was Nicodemus's moment that he came clean. He came open as a follower of Jesus. You know what I think? I think probably when Jesus said, I will be lifted up, and whoever believes in me will be saved, and Nicodemus' wheels are spinning, and it wasn't until he saw Jesus on the cross, when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, and these words started echoing back into his heart. He said, that was almost three years earlier, he's going to be lifted up, and whoever believes in him will be saved. And I think at that moment, it clicked. And Nicodemus realized that he was a sinner, and that Christ was his sacrifice. And in a moment of faith, he said, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, no matter what it takes. Tradition tells us that Nicodemus was kicked off the Sanhedrin, kicked out of the synagogue. He was stripped of all his notoriety, stripped of all of his power, all of his influence. But he was born again. He was a changed man. He was a different man. You know, I think many times it's very difficult for religious people to be saved because they're afraid of what people will think. Well, I can't, I can't now go and be saved because, I'm, after all, I'm a, I teach a class. or I've, I've been in that church for 30 years. Or what will people say if I, I've been a deacon? I've been a, I've been a leader. I, I mean, I can't possibly. What, what would people think of me? Listen, my friends, it doesn't matter what people think. It only matters what God thinks. And what he said to Nicodemus, he's saying to you, you must be born again. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? I want to give you an opportunity right now to say yes to Jesus. His offer of forgiveness, his offer of grace, his offer of mercy is on the table. It's offered to you. His love for you is real. But you have to be willing to confess your need for him. And listen, right now, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, if right now, uh, as you're listening to this message, you're just here, you're just feeling this sense of conviction. I need to be right with God. I, I, I've sinned against God. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be condemned because of my sin in my life. And, and only Jesus is my only hope, my friend. If that is you right now, the Holy Spirit is convicting you. He's drawing you to Christ. This is your moment to be saved, to be born again. But you've got to respond in faith. You've got to respond saying, Lord Jesus, please 
forgive me. And so I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer of faith. It's not the words that are magical at all. It's just, just a prayer of, of reliance on Jesus. And if today, right now, the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart that you have not been born again, then right now, I want to give you an opportunity to be saved right now, in this moment. So with your heads down, nobody looking around, if you're here today, you say, Pastor, I want to be in that prayer, including in that prayer, Pastor, pray for me. Just lift up your hand and let me just see that God's working in your heart. This is you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Just lift up your hand, Pastor. Just pray for me. I need Christ. I need to be right with God. The Spirit of God's moving in my heart right now. I need to be saved. All right. Anybody else? Maybe you're online right now and the Spirit of God's speaking to you right now. Just even where you are, lift up your hand. It's just you lifting up to God saying, God, help me. I need to be right. Anybody else? All right, put your hand down. Just pray this simple prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you. And I am lost. And I realize that none of my religious efforts mean anything. But I believe you died on a cross for me and rose again. And so I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Please have mercy on me. Today I choose to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness. Father, I thank you so much for your unfailing love for us. And um, Lord Jesus, I'm just so thankful that you told Nicodemus that day, you must be born again. Lord, I pray that we would truly be born again, not born from above, not, not just religious people that are empty, not just going through motions, but that we would truly be men and women whose lives have been changed by you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would live this week as changed men and women that are eager to share how you've changed our lives, eager to talk about our story. That we could say, man, there was one day I was just super religious, but I was lost. And the Spirit of God worked in my heart. I heard the gospel in a fresh way. I asked Jesus to forgive me. Lord, I thank you for the video we saw earlier and Mike's testimony of how that happened in his life. And Lord, I pray that that would be our story as well. Men and women changed, born again, saved, all because of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Use us now. Fill us with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.